0: You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. I wonder if you've ever heard the parable of how to catch a monkey. Does that ring a bell to anybody? I see some heads nodding. Good. Okay. If you haven't, I'm going to tell you. And although this is a parable, YouTube confirms that it is actually a real way to catch a monkey. Okay? I checked. So all all you have to do is you take a a gourd, a hollowed out gourd, and you cut a small hole in the top of the the gourd. And, And it's just small enough, or just big enough, rather, for the monkey's hand to reach inside. Then you tie the gourd around a tree, nice and tight. And you put some, some bait inside, some fruit, some food. I'm sure anything will do. I hear monkeys like all kinds of food. And then you just, you just wait. And what happens is the monkey comes along and reaches into the small hole and grabs the food. Right? And thinks, yes, I've got a snack. I've got my, my next meal. There's only one problem for the monkey. Because in order to grab the food, what has he done? He's, he's clenched the food in his hand, and now his hand is a fist. And because his hand is a fist, as he tries to pull his hand out of the hole, what happens? It doesn't come out, right? It's, it's stuck. Now, he can be free in an instant, right? All, all he has to do with his monkey brain is value his freedom more than what he's holding on to, right? All he has to do is say, I liked this food, but I want my freedom more. But he will not do it. So he pulls and he tugs, refusing to let go. And then, of course, a trapper comes along, grabs the monkey, and takes them to wherever monkey trappers go. Right? He's, he's been caught. Now, it is a true story. Apparently, you can actually catch a monkey that way if you want to try it. But also, it's a, it's a parable, Right? And it's, it's meant to teach us to reflect on what we're clinging to. Right? What we, we value the most that we're, we're holding on to, placing our hope in. And, and the question then is, in the end, is that thing, whatever it is that you're, you're clenching on to, will it lead to your destruction or will it lead to your benefit, your freedom? Right? In a sense, it's a parable about greed. And that's the very theme that the preacher of Ecclesiastes addresses in our text this morning, greed. If you remember, the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, he's on this mission to examine everything under the sun and see whether or not it it satisfies. He is searching for meaning in the universe, and he's trying to determine what offers us ultimate purpose in this That's his aim throughout this book. And he has time and time again shown us that everything is vanity, meaningless. The Hebrew word is hevel. It is a chasing after the wind. If you try to find, for example, ultimate meaning in self-indulgence, you won't find it. If you try to find it in your work, you won't find it. If you try to find it in money or status or possessions or even living wisely, If that's where you place your hope for significance and meaning, you will not find it. And so he's on this mission, as one author has said, to to depress us into dependence upon God. That's what the preacher is doing in Ecclesiastes. He's saying none of this that you're tempted to find meaning and significance in will satisfy it, will not fill you. Our meaning and purpose is not found in anything under the sun. And as we began to saw last week, as Pastor Clint opened chapter 5 to us, where is it then found? It's found in the fear of the Lord. And then we move along in chapter 5, verses 8 through 6, verse 9. That's our passage this morning. And we see that the pursuit of wealth and possessions, or you can sum it up, greedy living is also vanity. Now, the preacher's already mentioned this. If you, if you remember this, if you've been with us through this series, he's told his own testimony of how he's tried to find meaning and worth in money and possessions. He says in chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself... Silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. He's saying, I tried that and it failed. Well, what he mentioned almost in passing in chapter two from his own life, he comes back to here in chapter five, verses eight through six, nine, and he's belaboring it more in our text this morning. Namely, here's, here's his point greed is always destructive, always destructive. The, the insatiable desire for more, more wealth, more possession, more things is like clinging to that fruit in the gourd. It will ultimately lead to our downfall. That's what the preacher is showing us this morning. And so what he's trying to do to sort of continue with that illustration is he's prying our clenched fingers off of the treasures of this world so that we then could cling to a truer and greater treasure. Now, as Christians, if you're here, most of us are are Christians, we know deep down, we know this truth, that Christ and the life that's found in him is far greater than wealth and possessions. Like, that's not a hard thing to, to, to comprehend, but we also know, if we're honest, we also know the struggle, the temptation to greedily cling to the things of this world, don't we? And so we are in this text this morning... We're going to be both warned against the vanity of greed and, not just warned, but we're also going to be exhorted to experience the joy of contentment. And we'll see this in three movements in in the passage. If you're taking notes, first we're going to see the vanity of greed in chapter 5, verses 8 through 17. Then we're going to see the joy of contentment in verses 18 through 20, where the preacher turns and then shows us what true joy and true contentment looks like. And then third and finally, we're going to take a step back and think practically about a strategy for finding contentment. So the vanity of greed, the joy of contentment, and a strategy for finding contentment. So let's jump in. Number one, the vanity of contentment. Greed. Now, first, we need to define our terms. Right? We're using a word that's we're using two words that aren't in this text: greed and, and contentment. So, what is greed? Well, here's here's a simple definition of greed. Greed is a selfish desire for more wealth and possessions. That's what the preacher has in mind here. That's a biblical understanding of greed: a selfish desire for more wealth and p- possessions. In one word, it is. We could say it's materialism. Right? That's a, a good modern word for it. Materialism says. That I will find my worth, my comfort, my hope in the accumulation of wealth and possessions. Okay? Therefore, if we're using biblical language here, it is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. It is the worship and love of God being exchanged for, replaced with the worship and love of money and things. That's what idolatry is. Removing God on the throne of our hearts as the object of our worship and putting something else there. This is what the Apostle Paul says about it in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, that's a good word, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you hear what he's saying? The love of money, the craving, greed draws people away from the worship of God into idolatry so the the bible tells us then that greed is primarily a heart issue it's about what we love and worship and I think this is so important for us to to start with foundationally because I think the temptation for us this morning as we talk about wealth and possessions and greed is to say well I don't know that this is really about me because it's about the accumulation of money and stuff and I don't really have much of either that might be something you're tempted to say. Or, you know, I'm not like, and you can point to some famous person who you know is greedy. Right? I'm, I'm not really like that. If that's the way we think this morning, friends, listen, we will miss what God is saying to us here. First of all, by virtue of being an American in 2022, you are significantly more wealthy than the majority world. So in that sense, yes you are rich. In that sense, greed does apply to you. So when the Bible talks about the wealthy, in that sense, it is addressing, I know there's exceptions, but it is addressing American Christians. Our ears should perk up. But second, and more importantly, is that you and I see that greed, again, is a matter of our loves and desires. Diagnosing greed is not primarily about what we have, but what we want. And when we think of it that way, then we start to realize how can we evaluate our desires in light of what God's word says here. It applies to rich and poor alike and all who are in between. And so when the the preacher talks about greed, this materialistic, selfish desire for more wealth and possessions, he's talking to each of us. Now with that in mind, the preacher first, he jumps in verse 8 and he's showing us the vanity of greed first by telling us that greed brings forth injustice. Greed brings forth injustice. Look at verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for the land in every way. A king committed to cultivated Fields. Now we know the context here is greed because the very fir- uh, next verse applies it in the context of the love of money. And so what he's saying here is he's starting with this big picture of economic injustice in the structures of society. He's giving this as an example. He's telling us, listen, don't be surprised when you see those at the top use their positions of power for greedy gain at the expense of those under them. That is life in a fallen world. Don't be surprised by it. A heartbreaking reality of life in a sin-soaked world is that the poor often get the worst end of the bargain. That's what he's describing here. Now, he's not rejecting authority. He's, uh, the, the Bible often acknowledges the good and right use of authority. Nor is he saying that those in authority are always bad and those under authority are always good. That's that's not what he's saying here. He's describing the common tendency for the level above to take something from the level below. Because whether business or government or family, whatever the structures are, greed-prone sinners are at every level. Right? So he's saying don't be surprised by it. This is why... The best structures, whether it's in the business world, political world, family, the best structures assume that people are messed up, greedy sinners, and put in accountability structures, systems of checks and balances to help ensure that people aren't taken advantage of because of greedy hearts, but instead to ensure that that the authority is more like the king in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Committed not to greedy gain, but to the cultivation and care of those around them. Friends, this should, this should, if anything, this should lead us to pray for those in positions of leadership, including ourselves, in our families, in our, in our workplaces, pray for those in government authority, that such people wouldn't be motivated by selfish gain and thus oppress others, but, but they'd be motivated by the good of others and the glory of God cultivating goodness and truth and beauty around them. That should be our prayer for those in authority. And that they would know that however high their position, there is always one who is higher. God himself. You remember Pastor Clint remind us of this in, in chapter 4, that one day, the highest authority will call all to account. But in the meantime, we shouldn't be apathetic about it, but neither should we be surprised by economic injustice that is brought forth by greed. So then he moves on in verse 10, and he he sort of zeroes in a little more. He goes from big picture economic injustice to show us that greed, not only does it bring forth injustice, but it's also never satisfied. It's never satisfied. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Vanity. Now, if you look down in, in the passage to, to chapter 6, verse 7, we also see, see this here. And uh, the, the preacher gives another antidote in the beginning of chapter 6 about a man who gets all the wealth and possessions he wants, but he can't enjoy them. And the preacher writes in chapter 6, verse 7, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. You see the imagery there? Constantly eating, but never full. Greed is never satisfied. Now he's not, it's important to say this, the preacher is not condemning money here. He is not saying money is evil. Money is a necessary part of life in this world and can be and often is used for the good and benefit of others and for the advancement of his kingdom. We are a church because of the generosity of people who have given financially to a work like this. That would be a an example. What he's addressing here and what the Bible is constantly warning against is not money itself, but the love of money. Desiring money above all things. And he says it quite plainly, it will never satisfy. Jesse O'Neill is an expert on the psychology of money. She's written a bunch of books, great thinker on this. She says most Americans have a case of what she calls affluenza you heard of influenza, right? This is affluenza, an insatiable desire for more affluence, money and possessions. And she writes a lot about this, but I, I think it's, it's helpful to think of it that way. If we think of it like a, a sickness, greed like a sickness, then we can start saying, okay, you, let's test ourselves right now. Let's do that for a moment. Let's take an affluenza test. No nasal swabs, I promise, right? But think, think about this in your own life. Even if you're thankful for what you have, do you often think about what you don't have and how to get it? You might have a mild case of affluenza if that's you. Do you you have this sense of discontentment when you can't afford something that you want? You feel like an incompleteness there. Well, you might suffer from a mild case of affluenza. Or what about? This is what some of us do. What about when you don't, you can't afford it, but you buy it anyways? Right? Then you don't feel satisfied. You feel the sense of dissatisfaction, and then you feel guilt on top of that. Right? You might have a mild case of affluenza. Or have you ever thought, suddenly, if I just had more money for blank, then I'd feel settled. Then the anxiety would disappear. Then all would be well. Friends, that is affluenza. And I love it when brilliant psychologists who are not inside the church, not Christians, come up with a great word that the Bible has had for thousands of years, right? Jesse O'Neill calls it affluenza. The Bible calls it greed. And it's been plaguing us since the garden. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve believed the lie that God was not enough, they just needed a little more. And the preacher says, listen, it will not satisfy. And he goes on to show what happens even if you do. Say say you were to accumulate wealth. What would happen? Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? The point is simple. In the words of the famous musician, who I will not name, more money, more problems. Right? If you know who that is, you get a high five later. Right? That's what the preacher is saying here. When money increases, so will people who want to come and take it from you. Now, we don't know exactly what he's referring to here. It could be the oppressive systems. Of Verses 8 and 9 that we just talked about. It could be family members, freeloaders. I think of those who are, are generally poor or, you know, middle class. Then they win a massive lottery and people start coming out of, of the woodworks to get a piece, right? And then you see a news story 10 years later that they're broken in prison, right? More money, more problems. But regardless of the scenario, the reality is that with the increase of wealth comes the increase of responsibilities, and challenges, the preacher's just being honest here. It won't bring you the rest and satisfaction that you're looking for. Now he goes on to say, okay, not only does does it bring forth economic injustice, not only will it never satisfy, but listen, it's very practical here. It also sickens the soul. It's destructive to the inner person. Look at verse thirteen. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by the owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Now, this is a timeless story, right? A man has placed his hope in material things, wealth and possessions, then suddenly something happens and it's all gone. We could we could put it in any scenario throughout world history. You can modernize it by saying a home builder lost everything in the 08 housing crisis. A business owner had to file for bankruptcy, lost everything because the pandemic affected his business and closed his doors. I just read on Friday that on Friday evening, the Dow Jones closed at the lowest it has ever in 2022. And there is now fear of a recession. Do you hear the point? When you have it, it can be gone. Nothing, it can disappear in an instant. Right? But even if that doesn't happen to us. Say you say, okay, I got the money, and I still have it. And I think I'll have it till the day I die. Well, he goes on in verse 15 to 16 to say, this is true of all of you. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also grievous. Just as he came, so how she go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? That's one of Solomon's, uh, the preacher's favorite refrains is, oh, by the way, you're going to die. I was, I was reviewing my notes last night, and the kids were in the, the living room, and I said, you know, we called this series Ecclesiastes, the search for meaning. We could easy have, easily have said, Ecclesiastes, you're all going to die, right? <laughs> He's constantly reminding us, oh, by the way, you can't take anything with you. All prosperity, listen, friends, all prosperity is only temporary. Here today, gone tomorrow. And if you place your ultimate hope in it, it'll wreak havoc on you. Do you notice the language he uses here? Look at verse 13. He kept his wealth to his hurt. Look at verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation or irritation and sickness and anger. You hear his warning? Don't live for the accumulation of more wealth and possessions. Don't love money. If you do, you will not be satisfied. Instead, you'll be hurt, vexed, stressed, empty, anxious, soul sick, and frustrated. That's the promise of greed. I remember when when one of the girls was little, we're playing in the, the backyard with water toys, and she had a bucket. And she, she had this sort of play table over here and then the faucet uh, attached to the house over here. And she would fill up the bucket all the way to the top and then walk over about 25 feet or so to dump the bucket into the, the play table, right? It was a water play table. There was only one problem. By the time she filled up the bucket and walked over, she'd go to dump it out and there was nothing in it. And she just kind of looked there like, what's, I don't understand what's going on. Now, I let her do this like four times because it was adorable right? But she couldn't, eventually I intervened because she couldn't see what I could see, which was this bucket had a giant crack in the bottom, right? So she'd fill up the bucket. All right, I'm good. Full bucket of water. And as she's walking, it would just slowly drip. And and by the time she got there, it was completely and totally empty. Couldn't hold water, right? So I eventually showed it to her. I'm not a cruel dad, right? Intervened. Here's a bucket that works. And she continued, Playing, but friends, greed is a broken bucket. Right? It will not satisfy. The love of money and possessions will leave us empty and cracked. Now, thankfully, thankfully, we have a Father who sees what we don't see, and He's willing to intervene and give us the remedy for our our greedy, unsatisfied hearts. So. As we consider the vanity of greed, next we turn and see the joy of contentment. The joy of contentment. So the preacher, again, he doesn't use the word contentment here. But he does describe a life that is content in God and His providential gifts. So what he offers here in this description, primarily in verses 18 through 20, is an antidote to our materialism problem. And he's saying it's contentment in God. God. Now we've got to define our terms just like we defined greed, right? the selfish desire for more wealth and possessions. Let's define contentment. What is contentment? There's a lot of great long definitions for this. So I want to give you a simple one. Contentment is a joyful trust in God's providential care. A joyful trust in God's providential care. So let's put those two things together. According to the preacher, the remedy, he's about to show us, for Greed, selfish desire for more wealth and possessions, is contentment, a joyful trust in God's providential care. And and just as greed is ultimately a matter of the heart, not primarily about what we have but what we want, contentment is also a matter of the heart. It is an inward disposition, something that's not dependent upon outside circumstances. Because a heart malady demands a heart remedy, right? That's what the preacher gives here. That's what contentment is. It reorients our hearts from the love and worship of external worldly pleasures so that we love and worship and are satisfied and content and joyful in our great God. And notice this. So far, the preacher hasn't mentioned God as he's talked about greed. But in the beginning of verse 18, God enters the scene. And Just as God enters the scene, joy enters with him. And the preacher shows us first, he shows us that contentment enjoys God's good gifts. Look at verse 18. Behold, that means listen up. What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So the preacher, and we've talked about this already in Ecclesiastes, he has a balanced view of earthly things. He has a balanced view of money and possessions. We might be tempted to think, okay, if all the, everything we just said about greed is true, then why don't we just sell everything and, you know, turn Seven Mile Road Church into Seven Mile Road Monastery or something like that, right? Get rid of everything. Money's bad. Money's evil. But that's not what he's saying. That's, instead, the message is this. Listen, has God blessed you with wealth and possessions? Great. Praise God for it. Enjoy them. Steward them well. But don't look to them to satisfy you. Don't love them ultimately. Hold them loosely because they could be gone tomorrow. Instead, be content in God. Your, Your wealth and possessions are an unstable foundation. But the God who providentially cares for you is a solid rock. So enjoy the good gifts, but trust in the Lord. Contentment enjoys God's good gifts without finding hope and satisfaction in them. But also, along these lines, he tells us that contentment recognizes God as the source. You hear what he's constantly saying? Verse 18, God is the one who gives life. Verse 19, God is the one who gives wealth and possessions. God is the one who gives the power to enjoy them. He's saying God is the source. This points us to his providential care. We said contentment is a joyful trust in God's providential care. What what does that mean? What is God's providence? Well, listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them That the leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God is the source of all things. Plenty and want. And friends, think about this. The providence of God is not only an antidote to our greed... But it also answers our anxiety, which, let's be honest, often accompanies our desire for more, right? We think, if I don't get this, if I don't have this, then my life will crumble. We become anxious and untrusting. Friends, God providentially cares for his people constantly from his fatherly hand. Heed the words of the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, here's the reason, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Not only is he in control over what you have, not only is he the, the source of all things, but friends, more importantly, he is with you, Christian. He gives you something far better than wealth and possessions. He gives you himself. So that leads us to ask, is God enough for us? The Christian, this is, this is incredible to me. The Christian doesn't just have the gifts, but the giver himself. Paul, Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Psalm 23 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You could translate that, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Is God enough for us? That is a key question to diagnosing our greed and discontentment. There was a man named Asaph who had to wrestle with this question. And he tells this story in Psalm 73. And what happened with him is he saw the wicked around him prospering. He, he loved God and he looked around and was like, man, there's a lot of rich people who are getting fat and they're happy and life is going really well for them. And here I am following God and my life seems to be miserable. That was his faith crisis. That was his discontentment. And then he met the Lord. He had an encounter with God and the Lord revealed these truths to him. God is his greatest treasure and here's what he said in Psalm 73 verse 25 and 26. He said, "Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever." Friends, can can you honestly say can you honestly make this declaration? Do you hear what he's saying here? He's saying God, not only are you my everything in heaven, where I'll one day be with you for eternity, but there is nothing on this earth, there is no amount of wealth, possessions, pleasure, there is nothing here that I would desire more than you, God. You are my portion. You are my treasure. That is a man who is contented in God, joyfully trusting and resting in God's providential care and friends only when you and I see God in this way can we say with the Heidelberg Catechism Lord rain and drought fruitful and barren years food and drink health and sickness riches and poverty indeed all things come to me not by chance but God by your fatherly hand and I trust you and that is enough that is enough now the preacher then goes on to get even more practical And show us that contentment doesn't stress over daily affairs. Remember he said before, greed will eat at your soul. It'll make you sick. Now he's saying contentment is the complete opposite. Now look back at verse 12. We see an example of this. Where the contented man is contrasted with the greedy, discontented man. It says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much. What he's saying there is, listen, this person who works not upper class, not lower class, maybe middle class. They work really really hard and then they go home and they sleep. And they sleep joyfully and they sleep like a baby. Why? Because they're not trying to strive after more. They're content in God. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Those who are in content in God don't stress over daily affairs. Yes, they think well about things. They're not apathetic, but they trust the Lord. Then in verse 20, for he, this is the man who contentedly enjoys God's good gifts, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Now he's not saying that the contented person will forget what happened in his life. What he's saying is the contented person won't stress over daily affairs. Why would they? Why would they be anxious? They trust God and all things come from his fatherly hand and he is enough. See, the preacher is essentially saying this. The contented person is able to joyfully live in the moment instead of being excessively fixated with the accumulation of more things, more money. He can live in the moment joyfully. The Apostle Paul writes about this. He gives an example from his own life in Philippians 4. And here we have probably the most misused verse in the Bible. You guys know what it is? You might have seen it on a football player's, you know, eye paint or something. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's been co-opted for a lot of different reasons, right? I can score this touchdown through Christ who strengthens me. I can get this promotion through Christ who strengthens me. That's like the most American thing ever. Just take a Bible verse and make it like, how can I use that to make it where I get what I want, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here's a good Bible study lesson. Never read a Bible verse by itself, right? Read it in context. Read the verses before, listen to what Paul says. Philippians 4:11. By the way, he says this from prison. So, that interpretation is thrown out of the water. He's chained up writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, "Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You hear what Paul is saying? I can endure plenty and loss. I can endure the ups and downs of life. I can endure wealth or poverty, joy or sorrow. Because I have Christ and because I have Christ I lack nothing that is the joy of contentment now number three notice that Paul says he learned this and it's a secret I don't know about you that's frustrating to me because I would love to just have this contentment beamed directly into my heart right now right like during communion or something but it's something that's learned. And so just as we, as we tie all this together, I want us to think for a few moments about a strategy for finding contentment. Replacing our greedy desires with contentment in Christ. It takes practice, time, and intentionality. And I, we see a hint of it here in chapter 6, verse 9. And then we're going to sort of expand out and consider some practical tips. But look at verse 9 of chapter 6. He gives this proverb. And he says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. So sight of the eyes here refers to a clear view of the attractions of of wealth and possessions. He's saying it's better to clearly see the attractions of greed without wandering after them in an attempt to find satisfaction. In other words, he's saying, To have this, to find contentment, we need a clear vision of what's good and right. There are some things we need to see, comprehend, believe in. And so I want to give you three things that we need to see continually. We need to continually put these things before us in order to replace our greed with contentment. Number one, we need to see Christ. We need to see Christ Women just finished their, their women's retreat, and the theme was Behold and Become. We need to behold Jesus so that we can become content. Now remember, greed is a selfish desire for more wealth and possession. So friends, what would happen if you and I saw and received Jesus as the greatest treasure in the entire universe? Greed would dissipate. You don't need any more treasure because you have all the treasure that can be offered in Christ. Think of the satisfaction and rest for your souls in your daily life that would come. If you could say, if you and I could say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Surpassing worth. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Friends, we need to see Jesus as our greatest treasure. Now, some of you, I realize, you may not have seen Jesus at all yet. What I mean by that is you're here and you're considering Christianity, but greed is not your greatest problem. The greatest problem that you have is that you are separated from God. And what you need to see in this moment is that Christ and Christ alone Before he's he's your greatest treasure, he is the sacrifice for your sins. And all of those things you're looking to for hope and satisfaction will not satisfy. So would you see in this moment Christ? Would you turn from your sins and trust in his sufficient work on the cross and his victorious resurrection that you may have life? See him. And for those of us who who follow Jesus, okay, you say, see Jesus, great. How How do I see him? Friends, we see him in his word. Constantly, in this book, he has spoken to us so that we may understand the treasure of Christ. We see him as we commune with him in prayer. We see him, nothing fancy here, we see him as we gather with the saints who who encourage us as we're singing together of the treasure of Jesus. And as we continually do those things, week in, week out, day in and day out, our hearts will learn to be contented in Christ, our treasure. So number one, see Jesus. Robert Murray McShane talks about this, and he says this, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. And listen to his reflection. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love, And repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravaging sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Friends, we need to see Christ. And then second, we need to see our present circumstances in light of Christ. Don't get those two mixed up. Don't look at your seeming lack and say, what does this say about God? No, look at your circumstance and say, what does Christ say about this? If we we see our present circumstances in light of Christ in this way, after seeing Jesus and treasuring him, when riches come, we'll say, hey, thank you, Lord. I don't need that, but I praise you for it. You're my treasure, and you've given me this, so I'm going to steward it well, and I'm going to enjoy it for your glory. But likewise, when those things disappear... Is it hard? Of course. Are you afflicted? Yes. But you're not hopeless because you know you have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and kept for you. See your circumstances in light of Christ. And you'll say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm content in him. And then third and finally, see those around you with the eyes of Christ. See Jesus, see your present circumstances in light of, of Jesus, and then see others around you with the eyes of Jesus. When our, when our vision of Jesus pries our grip on worldly treasure, our hands are freed up to serve others. Right? Greedy people aren't generous, kind, caring people. But the church is to be made up of people like that because that's who Christ is. Jesus said it's more blessed, more happy to give than to receive. He said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, serving others in the body of Christ, constantly giving of ourselves is a wonderful antidote to greed. It brings us contentment because we are doing what Christ has called us to do. Now, if we practice these things, church, Humbly, prayerfully, over the long haul. We'll learn in plenty and in want the secret of contentment. So brothers and sisters, let this be us. Let's by, let's by God's grace confront our, our greed and dissatisfaction and discontentment in our hearts. Let's, let's take this remedy for selfish desire of contentment and apply it to our everyday struggles and trust in his providential care so that we see Jesus as our greatest treasure and uphold him as the greatest treasure to those around us. Let's pray.